pajamas in, in New York, uh, in the, the belly of the beast in many ways, uh, <laughs> depending on what beast you're speaking about. Uh, and, and you just moved to, to Queens. No, I'm rehashing a, a pre-waiting uh, room banter for these guys. Uh, so they sort of know. Yeah, I just, I just moved to Queens. Um, and so I'm sitting in an empty apartment surrounded by stacks of books because uh, we haven't moved our furniture yet. Um, <laughs> it's a very it's always, uh, yeah. authentic, the most, uh, left academic aesthetic. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's kind of an ideal place to be. It's kind of like uh, Hitchcock would talk about his favorite part of making a movie was before they started filming because the film would be, you know, all the possibilities were, and, and, yeah. and imaginings were like pure in his head. And then once they started filming it, you know, you'd have to like contend with reality. So that's, you know, at the moment you have your dream uh, apartment in your mind and it'll, it's only just downhill from here. Exactly. Yeah. yeah I'm in pre-production. Cool. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Well, you know, what's interesting actually given, cause we have a horrible housing crisis in New Zealand, uh, that's and, um, uh, you know, in every possible way, like for home buyers and for renters, all of that. Um, but obviously in New York, you guys have rent control, um, which we do not have. And I'm curious how that, like, is, is it the nightmare that, that people, you know, that sort of the, the orthodox traditional economists kind of say that it is in reality? <laughs> well, actually, rent control in New York is a nightmare, but not because we have it, just because it's unevenly implemented. Um, right. so finding apartments that are actually still under, you know, the rent control policies is a real trick. And part of that is because, um, landlords have just become extremely, uh, extremely astute at, at disenrolling apartments. So that there are all these kinds of tricks that you can use in New York to disenroll an apartment from rent control right. from like, from doing little renovations to, to just letting it sit empty for a year. There, there are these little tricks that landlords do. So I've actually right. never lived in a rent controlled apartment, um, but, but one day, uh, one day I might. Well, that, that makes four of us. So. <laughs> yeah. Oh my gosh. Just the dream of it. It's like, <laughs> shit. shit. Well, there you go. Landlords, they're wily uh, everywhere in the US and, and New Zealand. Um, but anyway, we're not here to talk about landlords. Uh, we're here to talk about all things Latin America. Uh, you obviously on the show previously, Jonas, and we're very glad to, to have you back. Um, and obviously a lot of things have happened since then, uh, not, not least of which being the pandemic that has uh, ruined all of our lives in different ways. Um, but, uh, but also one of the things that you were doing uh, is you went to Nicaragua for your, your dissertation, uh, which, which is fascinating. In, another country that uh, was part of the pink tide that swept uh, Latin America and, and, um, and actually is still, still in power there. Um, although, from what I understand the story, there's a little more complex than sort of um, uh, what we would maybe like to imagine in the best case scenario being a sort of triumphalist narrative. The, the left comes to power and everything is fine. Um, do you want to give us maybe just a, a brief overview of, of what you were there, wh why you went to Nicaragua, what you were you're, you're researching there, and, and maybe some of the, the, the focus on your dissertation, which, which looks at the, uh, the popular economy, right? Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm in the process of finishing up the dissertation and we'll hopefully have it done here um, in the next couple of months. Um, and it's been, a, it's been a long project. I've actually been going to Nicaragua um, for, for quite a while since about, uh, well, since 2010, I guess, was my first real visit wow. to the country. And uh, what I've been looking at since I started graduate school in 2015 um, is Sandinista developmentalism. So, so you're exactly right uh, to point out that Nicaragua was often grouped together with the pink tide governments in Latin America. Um, Daniel Ortega, who of course was this revolutionary commander back in the 1980s, as uh, 1970s and 80s, um, was elected to the presidency again uh, after having originally been president in the 80s uh, in 2007, right around the same time that uh, people like Evo Morales and um, uh, Rafael Correa and these sort of pink tide governments were coming to power elsewhere in Latin America. And part of what I'm trying to argue in my dissertation is that uh, there are some key differences about what happened in Nicaragua that differentiate it between that, that differentiate it from what happened in in other countries in in, in South America, um, and also that there is a particular kind of um, developmentalism that's happening right now in Nicaragua um, that I think the international left can can learn a lot from. Maybe not taking positive uh, lessons from it, but I think I think in a lot of ways what's happening in Nicaragua and what has happened in Nicaragua over the past uh, decade or so is a real cautionary tale uh, for the left. And, and also kind of gives us a way to, to look at 
the left's encounter with, with neoliberalism sort of writ large and, and to see the way that socialist thought and socialist strategy in different places in the world was really transformed by this super disorienting experience where we had the, the collapse of the Soviet Union and the demystification of, of Soviet modernity in a, in a big way. Um, and then also all the, de- all the disappointments associated with decolonization happened around the same time. Um, and I think that created like a, a lot of disorientation on the international left. And in places like Nicaragua, it created sort of these new vocabularies and these new repertoires associated with class struggle. And also, I think, prompted some new processes of class formation, which I get at in the dissertation. And so Nicaragua just offers a really great way for us to look at that um, and to, to assess that critically, which is what I'm trying to do in the dissertation. Well, uh, for, for those of us who aren't as uh, familiar, what, what are some of the key differences between what happened in Nicaragua and, and what happened in the rest of uh, Latin America? Yeah, sure. So um, so Ortega uh, comes to power in 2007, but, but he had been a, uh, a significant figure. Um, in Nicaraguan politics since since the 1980s. Um, I mean, he his Sandinista party, the FSLN, had been voted out of power in 1990. And then he'd immediately become the leader of the opposition and, and existed as the leader of the opposition um, basically from 1990 until he returned to power. And that signals one key difference, w- w- which is that people like Abel Morales, Rafael Correa came to power on the back of really destabilizing social movements that actually made, made sections of the country ungovernable and caused the collapse of the existing political parties. So, so there, there was a real sort of transformative element to the political systems in those countries um, associated with the pink tide. Um, and of course, the same can be said in Venezuela, uh, particularly after the attempted coup against Chavez um, and the sort of, you know, the refoundation of the country and the initiation of the Bolivarian revolution then. That didn't happen as much in Nicaragua. And, and in fact, Ortega didn't come to power on the back of a social movement like that. And, and he also didn't come to power making the same kind of transformative promises. He came to power promising that he was a uniquely synthetic force in Nicaraguan life and society that could stitch together a coalition, an economic and a political coalition that would stabilize the country and allow for sustained growth. And, and the benefits of that growth would be shared more or less, you know, in, in an egalitarian way, there would be sort of, um, the, the, the proceeds of this new pro- prosperity would trickle down through means-tested welfare grants and things like that. Um, but, but he was really promising stability. And in that way, actually, I think it's interesting. I think he's a lot more similar to Lula in Brazil than a lot of people, a lot of people recognize. Um, and I would also make the same distinction for Lula and say that Lula and the, the PT government in Brazil sort of sits uncomfortably with, with the pink tide. And I don't think is quite the same phenomenon. Yeah, totally. That's, that's funny. You, just uh gazumped me i was about to say that i was about to say <laughs> that sounds more like a lula um yeah. kind of synthesis as you as you say that's interesting though obviously um i know more about the brazilian context than the nicaraguan one but does that is there a similar phenomenon in terms of the engagement with like social movements and big kind of sectors of the economy where in brazil there's been this interesting development you know especially during the commodities boom but also before and after in terms of like different alliances forming between i guess you could say captains of industry or that kind of oligarchical neoliberal but a bit more kind of you know landowning kind of titans that have a huge amount of power and you know media space agriculture mining extractive economies um and there's sort of no way to break that hold that lula seems to have found that that's been like a continual pressure for the workers party as i'm sure we'll come to later but is mm-hmm. there is there a similar tension in nicaraguan politics yeah i, I think there is a similar tension i, I it's not it, it's not quite the same in that um, the Brazilian state is just so much larger and more powerful mm-hmm. than the Nicaraguan state. I mean, Brazil is just a much, much larger country um, and has political institutions that are just much, much more powerful than those that exist in mm-hmm. Nicaragua. And so there is that, that sort of connection between, between state agencies or state power and private sector actors and different sectors of industry, but, but, it, but it looks a little different. And, and in some ways it looks pretty similar, actually. I mean, there's, there, there are these tripartite agreements that Ortega is, is renowned for, um, which are essentially sector-wide collective bargaining agreements that affect um, especially export-oriented industries. So especially the free trade zones are governed by these, by these tripartite agreements, um, which sort of bring the state, private sector, employers, associations, and then Sandinista-affiliated unions together to negotiate these, these wage agreements and, um, and basically promise no strikes. Um, and that's actually contributed to, to a huge growth in Nicaragua's free trade sector. And that's, that's clearly a collaboration between the private sector and the Sandinista state, the Sandinista developmentalist state. Um, and then at the same time, 
there has also been um, just a huge extension of relief of, of, of material aid from Venezuela, um, which of course now is, is, is mostly dried up, but, but, but for a while was extremely, extremely prominent. Um, in the country. And a lot of that, all of that, in fact, was administered through parastatal companies, which were sort of jointly administered by the state. And then they tended to also be administered by Ortega or members of his family as sort of private enterprises. And so that also then contributed to a real um, binding together of the private sector and and the state in Nicaragua. And, And in many ways, binding together those two things sort of in the figure of Ortega and his family members. But then there's also this very fascinating concept of the, the popular economy, right? These like sort of more local cooperative uh, economies that, I mean, I don't know if they're sort of circular economies, but that, that kind of is how it, how it seems. Can you kind of give us a, a, an idea of, of what those are exactly, what they look like and how they fit into the, the wider political economy of Nicaragua? Yeah. Um, so this is actually, I mean, this is the more immediate topic of the dissertation. I'm In the dissertation, I'm really interested in understanding what, the popular economy is. Um, and I do that in a few different ways. So, so the popular economy in Nicaragua is a, uh, a, a national economic community, a sort of field of social action that is tied in important ways to institutions that were created during the mixed economy period in the 1980s. So in the 1980s, this was when the Sandinista revolution had come to power. Uh, the, the, the revolution accomplished a, a pretty significant economic transition away from this agro-export uh, capitalist model that had existed under the dictator previously, and towards what I call in the dissertation a growth-oriented mixed economy model. Mm. So, so this is this is an economic model through which the state is is trying really hard to hold on to domestic investors uh, by extending things like tax relief and and land concessions and things like that, trying to get people who are capable of making local investment to stay in the country and not to sort of scatter the way it happened earlier in Cuba. So that's happening on the one hand. On the other hand. Um, there is a, a really rapidly growing straight-ahead public sector. So these are these are state-owned institutions, state-owned companies that are employing large numbers of people. Um, and then there's a third sector of the economy, which during the mixed economy period was um, known as the cooperative sector. Um, and this is, in a lot of ways, a product of agrarian reform. So agrarian reform um, facilitates the formations of the formation of both state farms. And then also these sort of diffuse credit and service cooperatives that brought together basically farmers who lived near one another and shared access to the same roads. They would pool credit and pool surplus um, and organize themselves politically as a cooperative. But then there are also cooperatives that existed in urban environments too, with artisans sort of making similar arrangements. And all of these things are being legitimized and ratified by the revolutionary state. Um, so there develops this real sense among people who think of themselves as participants in the cooperative sector that what they're doing isn't capitalist in any meaningful sense. They're contributing to what they see as an anti-capitalist national economic community, um, a national economic project. It's also not public in a a strict sense. I mean, they're they're affiliated with state agencies very often and receive credit from the state, but they're not in many cases receiving direction directly from state managers or, or, or party cadre. So, so this thing starts to emerge in the eighties, right? Which, which is this, this, group of people who are typically engaged in sort of very informal household production practices, whether, you know, agriculture or market vending, um, who are really like imagining themselves to be contributing their labor to something that is national and non-capitalist and non-statist. And then 1990 happens and the Sandinistas are voted out of power. There's this U.S. supported, very right-wing administration that comes in. Structural adjustment policies are imposed really, really aggressively, some of the most aggressive policies in the world. And what happens this cooperative sector? I mean, it just goes into crisis. And so then what the dissertation traces is what happens after that moment in the 90s, where all of these cooperative members or people who are allied in certain ways with, um, with cooperatives and with the productive processes that are happening inside cooperatives begin to, to, to reconceive of themselves as a, as a movement on the one hand that can make demands against the hostile state instead of receiving support from a friendly state. And then also as sort of like, a anti-capitalist experiment in place um, that, that, you know, there's this whole flowering of, of in Sandinista social theory that happens after 1990, where some theorists, especially this one that I look at in some detail, Orlando Nunez, um, starts to conceive of socialist transition as a project that happens entirely in the market space and entirely outside of the state. 
that what actually what socialists need to do in a country like Nicaragua in the present conjuncture is to create an actually existing alternative to capitalist production in place and in that way sort of overgrow the formal capitalist mm. economy. And this is this is an idea that's like very much of its time, but but it really does take hold in Nicaragua and it really does impact the way people mm. see their their themselves as productive citizens, see themselves as workers in a really meaningful way. And then of course in 2007 the Sandinistas come back to national power and and all of these things sort of go into crisis again and then begin to get reformulated. So I know that I know that was a very long summary, but 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 that's that's sort of that's the history that I'm charting and in, in, in looking right. at. That but presumably the the popular economy that has kind of survived through this period of crisis. I mean, it's obviously you you were there in 2018 to to study it, so so clearly it has withstood these shocks. Yeah, yeah, and and the really interesting question for me right now is that is to what extent this popular economy is is a partisan idea, and and to what extent it depends on the FSLN holding national power. Mm-hmm. Um, or, or existing as a political force in Nicaragua. And, and this is, of course, kind of a fraught question because Daniel Ortega in, in Nicaragua is losing legitimacy extremely rapidly and, and likely will not be in power for much long. And also the sort of, you know, there's a, there's a global turn to the right that we can see very clearly in, in Latin America and elsewhere. There's also been a major loss of popular legitimacy for Sandinismo, especially for, among younger Nicaraguans. And it's a very young country. I mean, it's half of the country is... Um, certainly doesn't remember the 1980s. And so I think it's, I think it's a really, I think it's an open question to what extent the popular economy as a, as a sort of field of social action that people see themselves as participating in uh, will survive past, uh, past this current period. Um, But I think, but I think it also might, you know, I think that there are some, there are some things going on in Nicaragua that are just really not easily contained by, by, you know, things like the party or the state or the agency, the welfare agency. Um, which definitely will continue. And I think it's, I think it'll be really interesting to see how those things play out in the coming decades. So that gives us a really good kind of uh, grounding and context for Nicaraguan politics, but to get more current eventsy, uh, you, you say you think there's a good chance that this uh, movement is going to the right in the way that we've seen in um, previous years in other countries. Um, what's the kind of partisan polling like? Like there's an election in November, right? Uh, yeah, yeah, certainly in the fall. I, th- I think in November. I mean, it's 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 really difficult to say. I mean, it, what is very clear is that um, Ortega lost a lot of popular support in 2018 and in the years after, and 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 that was really explosive and really fast. I mean, I, I was writing, I think, just a year, maybe less than a year before before the big protests in 2018 broke out about how Ortega seems sort of unassailable. And it seemed very likely that he was going to succeed in creating a sort of dynastic dictatorship in a sense, you know, so certainly, certainly a sort of, you know, familial connection to the Nicaraguan state, similar maybe to the Kennedys in the US, you know, uh, I really thought that was going to happen. There just weren't political figures that seemed to to match his, his broad appeal or that had the same kind of recognition. Um, he'd also been very, very successful in sort of limiting opportunities for rivals to form parties that had any sort of electoral viability. Um, but both politically in terms of just actually building a, a big base and then also procedurally in terms of, you know, r- changes mm-hmm. to election rules and things like that. And he's lost a lot. I mean, the, the, the polling that I've seen, uh, which I think was, was done last year in, in, in 2020, um, indicated just, just a lot of uh, support lost. But there's no one really to absorb that support in, in the political field. So, so what you're seeing is Ortega going from, and I'm making up these numbers, but, but going from something like, like 67% favorability or 67% support down to like 40% support. But, all, but that difference is all going to sort of an ambiguous undecided, you know, or, or just completely disillusioned with the political system, don't intend on voting. And that's clearly a very volatile situation for the country's politics to be in. And I think that it's, it's entirely possible that as we get closer to this fall, um, there might emerge figures in Nicaragua who are capable of, of seizing upon some of that dissatisfaction. And I, I, I suspect that the, the ones who will be most successful in doing that are the ones who will be able to sort of connect their own political image to you know, reaction in the hemisphere more widely. I mean, to, to sort of live in the shadow of Juan, Juan Guaido, for example, or to sort of cut a similar figure in Nicaraguan politics. And I think that could be a very bad situation. Yeah. So, well, yeah, so very, uh, a moment of uncertainty with quite a bit of, of, of notes of pessimism in there. Um, and uh, 
a good transition to another another country experiencing another moment of uncertainty, though possibly more optimistic, uh, which is a country that you you uh, mentioned before that has some parallels to what has happened in Nicaragua, which is Brazil, uh, where of course. Uh, former president uh, Lula has, uh, first of all, he was he was uh, freed from prison. Was it last year? It was not, last year, yeah. Time. Yeah, and um, and just recently, uh, a court. Correct me if I'm not using the, the correct terminology here, but a court basically um, uh, threw out uh, the the case against him, right? Um, uh, for for kind of a technicality, um, but nonetheless, it all suggests that that uh, he may be able to run for uh, president of Brazil. Do you want to give us a brief outline of, of a the the case against Lula, the the reasons why he was ultimately freed, and the significance of this, uh, not just for Brazil, um, but but you know even for people uh, in the U.S. and people like ourselves here in New Zealand. Sure. Yeah. I mean, I, I have to confess that as I've been writing the dissertation, I haven't paid uh, super close attention to the sort of ins and outs of the Brazilian legal decisions. The great um, thing is. You know, actually, increasingly, I think that's kind of the point. And, and this is sort of a this is a tangential point, but but uh, it has more to do with just Brazil. I think you can say the same thing about politics in the United States, too, that this just this this increasing judicialization of political processes. I think mm. it's just an engine for people dropping out and stopping paying attention. They're, like scandal fatigue is real. And, and when it's it's just related in this really procedural way. With with judges making decisions that then get overturned by other judges, and and it's just <laughs> like like it's just so deeply depolitizing that I feel it working on myself too, even as an observer of <laughs> international politics. It is, yeah, yeah, it's it's really efficient. But I mean, I think we talked about you, we talked about this with you, Jonah, last time. I think in terms of Lavajato and kind of the the function of quote unquote anti corruption politics is mm -hmm. that it is depoliticizing. There's a very like depressing anti political and a kind of grassroots sense result to it because who's going to read all these legal opinions and have insightful like different thoughts on them to everyone else you don't really care right and it yeah. makes this really like it makes sound bites more powerful in a way like in a kind of counterintuitive way it, it's it's against the kind of like intellectual nuance and honesty that it purports to be enforcing mm. in this kind of objective sense because people read the headline and go oh another bloody corrupt politician like that's that's all you get back to and people drop out of that process easily. I mean, it's a, that's the, that's the, I think the point, right. Is the mystification um, through these procedural legalistic kind of avenues of politics and democracy to foreclose possibility. I mean, like in South Africa and Brazil, like, I mean, I just see a lot of parallels as well in the way that corruption is sort of used as a baton to, to foreclose that kind of like democratic, real democratic kind of um, engagement and debate. And uh, um, yeah, it makes me very, obviously we remain skeptical of <laughs> these sort of things, but I honestly turn off now when people talk about anti-corruption. I'm just like, Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it is a double edged sword, though, I think, too, for the right. I mean, because my understanding is that, you know, a, a big part of what's happening is that Moro, the, the, the judge who had issued the original decisions, which led to Lula's incarceration um, and disqualification from political life, has been so thoroughly discredited in part because of it's been revealed that he himself is as thoroughly corrupt as just about anyone in Brazilian politics. And, and so there's this real sort of hot potato kind of. Yeah. Well, that's the problem. Yeah. That's yeah. the problem with opening up that space, you know, um, when you're so thoroughly, like it's such a thoroughly corrupt um, and captured kind of space anyways. I mean, you know, it's the, you know, none of us are untouched by sin in that, in that, well, not none of us, I'm not part of the Brazilian political system, but were I, I probably too would be involved <laughs> Well, I think there's something important in what you're saying. Uh, obviously, you're, you're kidding, but there is something real in the sense that uh, without going into getting lost in the weeds of, of what Lula was, was um, uh, accused of, broadly, he was accused of corruption and, and convicted mm -hmm. over it. Um, but the important thing to remember is, is that the entire Brazilian political system is, is incredibly corrupt virtually every figure I, i'm not saying it's not actually clear that that what lula did or was accused of doing is what he actually did but regardless uh i mean the people that were going after him not just moro but the the uh the conservatives in in the uh brazilian uh, uh congress were, were also uh, actually more so corrupt uh, far more corrupt um but 
to get past that, what does it mean for Brazil and for for the rest of all of us that that Lula is now uh, freed and potentially can run for president? I mean, it, it's just great. It's 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 it's, it's <laughs> incredible that 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 it's really been something to watch this story develop actually over 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 years. Um, and I mean, just I remember just the just how crushing it was in so many ways mm-hmm. when when Lula was disqualified. And then of course, Bolsonaro just being just an unmitigated disaster from the beginning yeah. and, and the COVID response really bringing that home. I mean, I mean, it's, I, I think you can say pretty unambiguously that Brazil has just had the worst COVID response yeah. of any country in the world um, to the point where it's actually, actually threatening, threatening the larger continents efforts to control the virus at, yeah. at this moment. I mean, countries that are much poorer than Brazil that have been much more successful in containing the virus are facing um, the possibility of a really lethal wave uh, from a new variant, which is circulating pretty freely uh, right now in, in Brazil. Um, and, and that's entirely uh, a result of, of Bolsonaro's sort of denialist policies, r- routinely denying the severity or even the existence of the virus acting in such a way as to broadly align uh, with, you know, other right-wing demagogues around the world, especially Donald Trump here in the U.S. And, and, and of course, and, and now what's exacerbating it now in this moment even more is that while in the United States, we had an absolutely horrible response uh, under Donald Trump, we've at least had a relatively successful vaccine rollout under the new President Biden. Um, certainly not without its problems, but it, it, it's happened, at least in a way that it just hasn't happened in Brazil. And now, might not be able to happen depending on what happens with with these new variants which may or may not respond to it i was just gonna say it's quite an interesting contrast because you're right um trump did a horrible horrible response uh but uh he actually did by the end the the vaccine rollout was actually kind of picking up steam um Mm -hmm. you know the 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 thing biden had come in and said we're going to do 100 million in the first hundred days, and one of the reasons that the press kind of um, uh, criticized slash, you know, kind of gently mocked him for this is because basically by the time Trump left office, the U.S. was already on track to do that. So it was a very yeah. low ball. But yeah. that, that shows you, I mean, even though Trump obviously, uh, even the vaccine rollout had, had serious issues under Trump, the fact that his government was at least able to do this one thing and that Bolsonaro is apparently cannot is, is shows you just how not just right wing, but how incompetent. It is, you know, it, it, it's it's not even competent enough to be able to, uh, I guess, foster that sort of popular legitimacy. One thing I w- wanted to ask you, though, was I did see that, that Bolsonaro, maybe this has changed now because things are going so out of control, but at one point that his popularity had actually kind of gone up because of, uh, you know, various economic policies like cash transfers and stuff that had gone out under his government. What's to say so that? I mean, like, was it a similar phenomenon where people were getting money financial support from the government that they actually kind of became a little friendlier to, to Bolsonaro, uh, you know, while, while the pandemic was raging out of control. Yeah. I mean, I, I think, I think you could make that case. Definitely. I, I think there's also something to be said for just the, the real volatility of public opinion polling uh, during the COVID-19 mm. crisis. Um, and, and in many cases, I think that is attributable to sort of emergency measures that, that governments were implementing in the short term. Um, and so I'm I'm skeptical of not of those numbers particularly that you're citing, but just really of any public opinion polling that happened in 2020, because I think yeah. that in a lot of cases what it indicates is is what it indexes is um, either approval or disapproval of the government's sort of immediate immediate COVID measures. Yeah, it's yeah. incredibly immediate. Like I yeah. think it's you know like um, what's that quote where there are some years where decades happen, um, and I think that that's mm. exactly how it's, that's Lenin, isn't it? just quoting Lennon, but that's exactly right. Like, I don't think that we can take much because things are happening at such a fast level and, you know, day to day, our literally, you know, like our lives look different and we might have a different estimation of how well we're doing. Based on that, um, I think it's very, very hard to kind of extrapolate any long-term political implications from some of this stuff. I mean, it was the same with Trump, right? I mean, when he signed his name to the check and um, I think there was... um, a feeling that that inspired some loyalty, which it did, but the long-term implications of that is very difficult to tell when, as I said, every day you've got a kind of new crisis to deal with and every day feels like a year. Yeah. I'm not saying that that's necessarily yeah. the case, but it does. I mean, I, I've aged 20 years. I mean, it's, it's sort of easy for us on, on the left, I think, to forget the, the value of, 
like a powerful public figure like a Bolsonaro or, or a Trump, like obviously just based on this conversation, the amount that we've talked about, like structural state theory issues, we're not like on the left, we don't tend to have that kind of honing in on particular kind of that anti-great man theory bias that I think we can yeah. take too, too far sometimes. Like I was, I was reading that doctors in Brazil, because Bolsonaro advertised chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine so heavily and just continues to say, as far as I can see, that he thinks this medicine with no evidence to support that it works is the solution, the one and only kind of solution. Um, there are doctors who are getting death threats and having to leave their hospitals and leave their hometowns because people are coming in saying, well, the president wants me to take this thing and says it will fix me or my dying grandma and you refuse to prescribe it. And the doctors say, well, there's no evidence to suggest that it'll help your grandma. We don't even have any. Why would we? It's ridiculous. <laughs> like, of course, we're not going to just start prescribing this thing with no evidential value. And they're being like death threats sent to people's homes and family members threatened. So there is like, there's a kind of cultural value to a, a unifying figure, I think, in a, in a crisis, especially mm-hmm. where yeah. like much as we criticize Jacinda Ardern, that's been something she's been really good at is that kind of unifying yeah. communications role from the top down that kind of brings everyone together. And it just absolutely hasn't been that. And as you were saying, in terms of polling, it's sort of been hard to know as well because there hasn't been a unifying figure on the other side until recently. Like Lula's just really getting up steam again as a, as a public figure, as, as like a polar alternative. And it's been really impressive. Like it was only, I think, yesterday that he, he started talking about COVID is the greatest genocide in the history of Brazil. And he's using really strong, like emotive, clear language about it. And I can see that gaining steam hopefully this year. There's still a few years until he could run for an election, but you could, you could imagine a kind of social movement based opposition gaining some, some strength at this point. Cause it's true. Like there's never been such a devastating in the history of the, of the modern Brazilian state, there's never been such a devastating event as this just complete negligence from yeah. the top down and the government. It's really, really, really tragic. And, and Lula really is the figure in Brazilian politics who could uh, assemble a coalition like that, that would be capable of, of, of not only, you know, beating Bolsonaro in the, in the short term, but then okay. also sort of creating a, a different future for Brazilian politics mm-hmm. than, the, than the one it seems to be marching okay. towards now. And, and, that's, and that's, of course, partially, uh, I mean, it's a big part of the reason why Lula was attacked in the first place through this, this anti-corruption probe, um, was that it was, it was very valuable um, for, for the Brazilian right um, and even the Brazilian center to, to disqualify him from holding political office. And, and so it's just, I mean, it's, it's, it's such good news. Now, not just for Brazil, but I, I think for the international left that, that you know, we, yeah. yeah. Well, let, let's get into some crude horse race bullshit. Uh, <laughs> you know, let's go, let's go full ESPN here. Uh, what, what are Bolsonaro's chances looking like? Uh, what, what are the polls saying? Is he, is he quite vulnerable because of the mind boggling disaster that he's um, allowed to unfold? Yeah, I mean, tough questions. Um, I, I think really all you can say with certainty about about Brazil right now is that uh, politics are polarized. They're just polarized as hell. And so I think that makes it makes it really hard to make predictions because it really is about sort of winning voters in the margins. Um, and that's, of course, you know, that's a bullshitty horse race, horse race way to put it. It's, it's about being able to create coalitions that are large enough to govern. So it's all about him. Um, but, yeah. <laughs> but, but I think that's a real challenge, you know, and, and so and it just makes it, it just makes predicting the future is so, um, so terribly difficult. Um, I think one thing that is interesting and, and, and that that I've certainly been paying attention to um, has to do with with welfare. And, and, and you brought this up before um, and the way that welfare is configured and, and, and formatted um, in this, this period in, in global capitalist development, sort of in the present day. And, and there's been some great writing on this recently. And, and actually my, my dissertation tries to look at this a, a little bit, but there's, there's, there really is sort of a new paradigm in welfare provision, which is in a lot of ways very different from the paradigm that existed in European social democracy or social democracy more generally. It's even, it's even different in a lot of ways from what existed in the developmentalist states of sort of the decolonizing world. And, and it's based on conditional cash transfers, conditional transfers of agricultural inputs, um, goods. And, it, you know, in the global South, people typically refer to programs like that as, as targeted, you know, targeted welfare. Uh, in the global North, we refer to them as means tested. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that they're, they're just as means tested in Brazil as they are in the United States. I mean, they, they represent a real weakening of, of welfare protections, but then they also represent a way for a state that doesn't have uh, the political capital that it would require to sort of implement a, a real progressive uh, taxation program to actually redistribute wealth internal to the country in a way that has teeth. It, it gives governments that are not in a position to do that politically 
at least sort of some avenue for poverty alleviation um, and also for constituency building. And I think that that sort of fragmentation of the welfare world and the, the sort of changing character of how welfare is provided and, and, and to whom is, is something that can have all kinds of political effects uh, that we haven't really reckoned with yet and that we probably won't be able to um, until we see how things shake out in, in a number of countries. But, and, and one thing that, that I'll point out is that targeted welfare, means-tested welfare programs of that type are not necessarily incompatible with, with people like Bolsonaro. I mean, the, the right-wing governments and certainly sort of centrist liberal governments all over the world advocate for and, and, and implement um, means-tested welfare programs uh, to, to solve various kinds of social problems, to ameliorate certain kinds of crises, and, you know, not for nothing, to subsidize the private sector so that people can pay really, really suppressed wages and it won't threaten the social reproduction of, of workers in the country. You know, I mean, mm. th this is perfectly compatible with a kind of neoliberal developmentalism. It's perfectly compatible with like a right-wing populist kind of developmentalism. And so it's, it, it's becoming really difficult to assess the political character of programs like Bono Productivo in, in Brazil, which was the sort of flagship um, direct transfer, direct cash transfer, direct food transfer program, which has been emulated all over the hemisphere um, in Nicaragua, you know, in, in many places. It's just, it's just becoming very difficult to sort of think of that as a definitively left-wing or progressive yeah. developmentalist mm. type of policy. You know, it's, it, we really have to look more closely at how it's configured. Let me ask you as well, uh, just finally, at least for me, about what I would argue is the most urgent issue uh, for the entire world, let alone Brazil, uh, which is which is the destruction of the Amazon. Obviously, mm -hmm. the deforestation yeah. has, has accelerated at a, a horrific rate uh, under Bolsonaro. It's, we're rapidly reaching a point where I think actually just this week or last week, uh, there was a report that the Amazon is now actually emitting carbon. So it's no longer actually sucking carbon out of the atmosphere, which is uh, terrifying. Obviously, we're reaching a point where the, the, the rainforest could actually start to die back, um, which would release even more, uh, I mean, a, a, an extravagant amount of carbon <gasps> in the atmosphere. Yeah, sorry. Sorry, I, I am getting no, no, to no. something. No, no, uh, I'm, I'm just despair. I'm just despair. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, no. Well, but this is this is, I think, what's what's uh, really important, which is what what is or has Lula said anything about or made any sort of indication about that, that he sees this as uh, the urgent issue that I think it clearly is, um, and that he plans to make some sort of sharp break from what came before. Because I know under Lula, obviously, deforestation was not as bad as it is under Bolsonaro, but it was still not great. Uh, yeah. So, is it what what indication do we have of what his policy on this issue is going to be, if any? Maybe it's too early. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think mostly it's too early. So I hesitate to say. I, I actually don't know what Lula has said, if anything, about about um, that issue in particular. You know, as related to the upcoming elections and not related to to what happened in the past. I, I think you're sort of pointing to the key thing, though, which is which is that it's not. It's not a given that that a Lula government in Brazil will necessarily um, slow development of the Amazon to the extent that would be required. I also don't think, though, that that we should be too pessimistic about it. I mean, I I, I remember that recently uh, Daniel Aldana Cohen, who's written for Jacobin and, and has been a big proponent of the Green New Deal in the United States, he said something on Twitter about how if there's any figure in in Brazilian uh, political life who could sell a multiracial, working class oriented suite of green policies for Brazil to, you know, a country that large and a country that sort of associated, imbricated in extractive industry. I mean, mm. that would be Lula who could do that. And, and he might. Um, mm. And but 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 he won't he won't inevitably. And so it'll take it'll take movements pushing him to do that. Yeah. Um, and, and in a very real sense, it, it, it'll take a recognition that his the, the kind of electoral coalition that he will need to build to beat Bolsonaro just just will need to break in some way, the class polarization that exists in, in, in the Brazilian political system right now. So he's going to need to pull some either like downwardly mobile upper middle class, upper class Brazilians, maybe maybe the young ones. He's going to have to he's going to have to pull sections away from Bolsonaro's mm -hmm. electoral majority. And I think one way that he might be able to make inroads amongst wealthier Brazilians of certain kinds of social sectors um, is by emphasizing the environmental issues. I mean, these are really mm -hmm. synthetic issues. These it's it's not. It's not just Lula's historic base of, of poor workers who 
might care about deforestation in the Amazon. There's th that's an issue that resonates across sort of class sectors of society and, and could be a really potent tool for them. I have a question though. Lula's mm -hmm. quite elderly. I mean, he's nine. I, I actually just looked up when he was born, just so I could clarify. 1945. He, you know, it's like this is the thing. Like we're reliant on um, these really getting up there in age comrades. <laughs> mm -hmm. And uh, that's the kind of thing that worries me. I mean, is he is he going to be in a fit state to lead this struggle? And if not, the hole that he leaves is enormous. Like there's such a lot of pressure on him as a figure in a way. And, and I'm wondering if there are any other who could take his place. Is it even a possibility? Or is he just specifically the guy? Yeah. yeah. It's not really I mean, a very good, well-formulated question, but that is the question. No, I, I think I think you're you're really sort of getting to the core weakness of of Lula as a political figure and of the, mm. the sort of movement that he represents. I mean, it was, and, and this is not this is not Lula's problem alone. You know, I mean, this is really a characteristic of mass politics in in the neoliberal era, which is mm. that just institution building is lagged so far behind the pace of change in a lot of ways. That that there is a lot of uh, a lot of importance tied up in sort of singular figures, um, and in fact, that actually might be a good segue to begin talking about Bolivia because I, I think that's that's a big problem that's facing um, uh, facing Bolivia and facing Moss right now. I was going to say it's the weakness of a left of populism, right? I mean, that's like essentially what it is, and you see that everywhere where left populism emerges is how tied up it is to this direct relationship with the leader to the people, um, and the the institutional lag that you you talk about. And it's, it's really concerning, especially when you're at these critical junctures where you sort of need that institution and the the, the working class organization to be able to carry on beyond these these charismatic leaders. And I guess, yeah, Brazil seems is coming to that point, I would say, because as I said, Lula's getting old. But it's, I mean, it's the same with the American left, I would say, and Bernie. Um, yeah, so I think that there's a lot of parallels elsewhere. Um, yeah. That's right. Yeah, I've heard the the feeling among the Sanders campers that, that he, you know, they don't feel like he has a uh, successor, even though obviously there is a squad in Congress. But I do think the squad has uh, not so much the, the the substance of their politics, but I think their approach to how they do things is, is, is different to, to how Sanders has done things and why he's been so successful, I would argue. But yeah, Bolivia, I mean, I'm interested to ask you about this because uh, obviously in Bolivia, you had an election where now it was... Uh, for the first time in uh, um, how long? Like nearly nearly two decades. It wasn't Eva Morales who who uh, was heading uh, masses. Uh, well, mass into the election. It was mm -hmm. it was uh, Luis. Uh, I'm gonna destroy his last name here. Uh, 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 Asre Acre. Uh, Arce. Yeah. Arce. Arce. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, I, I even I even got the the go, go. around the wrong <laughs> way. Horrible. Horrible. Um, but but you know not a not Morales, mm -hmm. and so it would seem at least superficially that that uh, Mars and Bolivia has managed to uh, overcome this obstacle because they've been able to get rid well not get rid of but they've been able to move it's forward pass, without yeah. this singular charismatic figure that really became the be all and end all. Um, but but you're suggesting that actually things are not quite as hunky dory in that department as as maybe they seem. Can you tell us a little more about that? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that, I, I mean, you're right to, to, to point out that uh, Evo Morales is not the president currently, that Moss has placed another president. Um, <laughs> Thank, I'm glad I got something right. Uh, <laughs> no, I mean, but, but it is, it is these, important. These are, these are astute observations that we're making. And we're <laughs> <laughs> no, no. But, but, but it is important that, that Luis Arce has won the national elections and is sort of, um, a lot of people are sort of looking to him to set you know, a, a certain kind of new direction. Yeah. Um, but I think actually more important than the national elections and, and not to take away from them because like what an incredible victory that mm. so soon after a, mm. a, you know, a takeover as violent and as, as brutal um, as the one that happened in, was it 2019, the end of 2019. So soon after that um, mm. for, for Moss to return uh, is just an incredible accomplishment and, and a real, a real ray of sunshine. I mean, I, I was actually remembering our last conversation uh, on this podcast um, which I think was in in December of 2009 or some or 2019 or something like that, and and I think I ended on a really pessimistic pessimistic note, saying that that Moss seemed to be about done. You know that I wasn't yeah. sure what kind of future the party had, um, and I think a lot of people weren't really sure what kind of future the party had. Um, and I'm I'm very glad to have been repudiated on that point uh, at least. But 
I, I, I think that more important than the national election uh, was the subnational election, uh, which took place actually uh, this month, uh, earlier in March, which really did reflect um, a pretty significant fragmentation, maybe several fragmentations happening, um, not only amongst the sort of political leadership layer of, of Moss, but, but also amongst, uh, among its base, which I think is, is, uh, is reflected even in the results of, of those subnational elections and also sort of signals uh, some, some trouble ahead, some continued trouble ahead for Moss um, and maybe some, you know, some shifting terms of debate uh, mm. politically in Bolivia. Well, that doesn't sound good. On the on the other <laughs> hand, uh, uh, on on the national level, we've also seen now a typical of the of the intolerant left: the arrest and imprisonment of um, Janine Añez, the the uh, not the cool cool leader, but the uh, person who who most profited from uh, the coup that removed Morales because she. Uh, ended up taking over as, as interim, and I'm doing big air quotes here for people who cannot see, interim president, and then just sort of stuck around for just months and months and months, uh, delaying election after election. Um, so what, what's happened there? Uh, the, the narrative in the Western press is that this is a sign of a, you know, uh, some, in some cases, a return to authoritarianism for people who, who believe that, you know, argue that, that Morales was this kind of strongman figure. <laughs> Um, but in any case, it's framed as this authoritarian move. It's, it's a persecution of political opponents, uh, typical of what happens when sort of uh, left-wing uh, parties take power in, in Latin America and elsewhere. Yeah. So what, what has actually happened here? Yeah, I think I, it's a step back for women, personally. And I was really, um, I was quite, I was quite aggravated to see that, you know, a strong woman being um, shut down. But yeah, so anyways, I mean, look, if we can start there, and um, yeah. Jonah and just kind of let's, <laughs> let's have a kind of feminist analysis, if you will. Uh, girl, yeah. girl well, boss Anya is being arrested merely for speaking her truth. Right? Right. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Li- living her, living her truth, really. Yeah. Well, yeah. you know, what is uh, from from the point of lived experience? You know, should we not take her word? seriously that that morales did see that election and that she is uh just to, you know has the right to just rule as the president forever with, without ever being elected yeah. uh, sorry that seems to be the washington post position did you see their their op-ed mm. yeah they, they had one of the more um one of the more full-throated uh defenses of of the the coup government um i i thought and and so so i mean we'll mm. say off the bat um, I mean, that's bullshit. Like that it's, it's just absurd to, to, to think of this as an example of creeping authoritarianism. And yeah, it's, that's absurd. I mean, um, the people have to be held responsible for what happened in Bolivia and what happened in Bolivia. It was an extremely, uh, well, it was, it was first of all, a, a, a fraudulent effort to, to tar a legitimate election was second of all, a, a violent takeover of the actual seat of national power, the, the buildings, the people, um, that was accompanied by just a massive right-wing insurrection that enrolled elements of the police and the military. Uh, it was awful. And then what happened mm-hmm. when Janine Añez was actually in power was also awful. There were, there were a series of massacres um, around Bolivia of MAS supporters, of demonstrators. There was just horrible repression. Um, mm-hmm. and, and so people have to be held accountable for that. And, it's, and, and the hand-wringing from the, the, the Western press is, is just, you know, ignore it. I, I, I think, though, that, that if I can maybe say something that'll be a little unpopular perhaps with some leftist observers of Bolivia. I think more than anything else, the, the arrest and prosecution of, of Añez indicates a kind of political weakness um, for Moss. And, and, and what I mean by that is that, I mean, first of all, Añez was the interim president. In many ways, she was the, the figurehead of the coup government. And, and she's being charged with, with fomenting the coup, essentially. I think she's been charged with sedition and conspiracy. And so she certainly must be held responsible. She also wasn't the only or even perhaps the most important figure in Bolivian politics pushing for that coup and making that coup happen. I think the most important figure for making that coup happen was Luis Fernando Camacho, um, who you know, was sort of a Juan Guaido type figure who led these, these massive mobilizations of right-wing Venezuelans in his native uh, district of, um, of Santa Cruz. But then also he sort of famously flew to Bogota when, or to La Paz at one moment to demand, to sort of confront Morales and demand that he resign. He was really sort of a major figurehead and was really tightly connected to some paramilitary style fascist organizations, especially in the Bolivian lowlands. 
Um, he's not in prison. He hasn't been indicted. In fact, he was just elected in these latest municipal elections to be the governor of Santa Cruz. So the, so the actual coalition that accomplished the coup in Bolivia is still very much enmeshed in Bolivian government. They're holding positions of power inside the Bolivian state, if we look sort of subnationally. And, and so the, the, the arrest and, and prosecution of, of Janine Añez, well, is, I mean, it's certainly, it, it's justifiable and I think it's appropriate in a lot of ways. Um, I think also indicates that it's, it's sort of low hanging fruit in a lot of ways. It wasn't a a broader rejection or that that Moss wasn't capable of of accomplishing a broader rejection of that coalition and government. So you're saying they weren't capable. So yeah. So do they not have the the political capital at the moment to go after like some, a figure like Camacho? Did I say that correctly? Mm -hmm. Uh, yeah, I, I don't think so. And I think if it, this actually connects to the point that I had made sort of in passing earlier about the, the weakness of Moss on a subnational scale, which really was, was demonstrated um, in these, these subnational elections. So Moss was anticipated to win uh, the governorship in, in, in Santa Cruz, which, which actually would have been like a pretty significant thing. Santa Cruz is a pretty historically uh, right-wing area of Bolivia. It's, yeah. it's, it's majority Spanish descendant, not indigenous. Um, it sort of was, was, it's had sort of like a separatist type right-wing politics that's existed for more than a hundred years in that, in that area. But Moss was expected to win the governorship. They were, they were fronting a candidate um, who actually in like in, in January of, of this year was like dragged out of his office and beaten in the street by the, uh, you know, by right wing, yeah. uh, by a right wing gang and then was arrested by the, the Agnes government and thrown in jail. And he still was expected to win after that happened. You know? Wow. Um, and then what happened was was uh, 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 there was a, a real process of, of uh, disintegration around his candidacy within Moss. And a lot of that was coming directly from Morales. So, so there was a pretty famous incident. Um, I don't remember exactly when it happened, but it, in Bolivia, it's known as the, the Cietaso, which are like the chair incident, where Morales, having returned to Bolivia after Luis Arce had, was elected and he could once again return to Bolivia, um, is at a public meeting, or it's actually a closed meeting. It's for Moss uh, Cadre in, uh, I believe, in Santa Cruz. And he basically announced that he was withdrawing support or that he personally didn't support this candidate um, oh. who had a lot of popular support and was expected to win and instead wanted to ballot uh, another figure inside the party that was perceived as being closer to, uh, to, to Morales. And in fact, sort of the, the, the issue that was at the crux of all this was that um, the original Moss candidate, whose name I'm sorry, I can't remember, had been opposed to to arresting and prosecuting Camacho. Thought that would be divisive in a way that that wouldn't be controllable politically. Um, Morales was not okay with that. Insisted upon a candidate who would advocate for you know the arrest and prosecution of Camacho. And ultimately, the the party rank and file rejected Morales, which was pretty incredible. They they still voted to nominate the guy who he didn't want, but but that guy didn't win. You know the the right winger won. Right. Sorry, um, it was ultra-leftism. Just I mean, it, it, it's certainly a fragmentation. I mean, it's and, yeah. and, and, and a similar thing, actually, if, if I can give you one more example, took place in El Alto, um, which is historically a, a moss stronghold. I mean, this is a this is a majority indigenous city. Um, really, I mean, it's it's just Abel Morales territory. Um, and the 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 mayor who was recently elected, uh, Eva Copa. Uh, sort of, a, he's a 33-year-old Moss militant. Uh, was actually president of the Senate during the the sort of transitional period that was created to sort of allow the Bolivian state to survive in some form when Anyes had taken power. She sort of represents a younger generation of developing leaders inside Moss who really have come of age entirely uh, under Morales, um, not just as political leaders but as people. This is another thing that I think a lot of people have failed to grasp about Bolivia, which is the median age in the country is 23. It's an extremely wow. young country. Yeah. Uh, demographically, it's growing really fast. Um, and it's growing really fast uh, in um, the indigenous communities are growing extremely fast in terms of population. And then the urban population is growing really fast as people migrate um, into cities and, uh, you know, just as the cities grow. Um, and so what that means is that there, there's a huge layer of people in the country who have have grown up entirely under Morales, essentially, um, who don't really have a sense of, of uh, politics outside of this sort of constant battle between a really like ancient and sort of, you know, anemic right that existed for a long time under Morales and then Moss as, as the seat of national power. 
And, and Eva Coppa is sort of coming from that generation. And also she was ended up on opposite Morales in, in, in a sort of um, in a dispute that took place right around the coup, which had to do with what the role of um, of Moss legislators should be after. Because if you recall, I mean, um, Alvaro Garcia Linero, the vice presidential candidate and vice president, and then Evo Morales, uh, they themselves, I mean, certainly under extreme duress, like in fear of their lives, nullified the results of that election. Mm. Sort of in an effort to like, okay, let's create a situation in which the state can survive with some sort of democratic input. Um, And then there was a real dispute about what legislators in Moss should do. And so the, the, the president of the Senate that had already existed resigned and, and sort of led a lot of, of, of these legislators to resign to sort of prevent quorum to mm-hmm. sort of from the beginning mark Anyas as illegitimate. Eva Copa didn't do that. She was on the other side of this party discussion and she actually remained in her seat. She became the president of the Senate for a time representing Moss. And, and, and this was very much about sort of maintaining stability, recognizing a future for the party after Moss. I mean, we can debate whether this was like a, a good political decision, but the point is that she did it, which in turn alienated her from Morales and from the Morales wing of the party, um, which then in turn led to her not being listed as a mayoral candidate of El Alto, where she was widely expected to win. She's like far and away the most popular political figure in El Alto. Um, she was not listed by Moss uh, to run for mayor she nonetheless ran. She, she essentially left the party, ran uh, as part of an indigenous formation, an indigenous political formation, and she won. Um, now, to, 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 to make that run, she, she's been described like in the Western press as like a more moderate alternative to, to Morales. That's, like, that's sort of a misnomer because there are some issues, particularly issues of you know, indigenous land rights and things like that, where she's well to the left of Morales. Um, but it is true in the sense that the, to make that run successful, she allied with um, forces inside uh, the indigenous movement or inside sort of, you know, the yeah. indigenism writ large in Bolivia that are anti-moralist and that do have sympathies in some cases to the right wing. So there's this, there's this process that seems to be happening at the local level all over the country where um, younger developing leaders inside Moss are being alienated by mm. the sort of upper echelons of the party, which are still in a lot of ways dominated by Morales and his sort of immediate cohort. And then as they're being alienated from the party and leaving the party in many cases, the sort of the only place where they can turn um, is to more centrist or more right-wing figures and to sort of knit together platforms and coalitions that way, which is a really dangerous position, I think, for Bolivian politics mm. to be. So in a way, the coup, what the coup, the lasting impact of the coup has been kind of the fragmentation of Mars. Mm-hmm. Um, and that hasn't really been helped by Morales' political response, which I think, I mean, from the sound of what I'm hearing from you, has has been kind of focused, not, not necessarily been pragmatic or uh, strategic, I would say, because, you know, like not listing a very popular candidate that's going to win an alienating just to be a very strategic um, response, even if you've got gripes around their what you know what happened during the coup, but I think it kind of speaks to the fact that of the traumatic and disorientating kind of impact of the coup on Mars and their mm-hmm. political discipline. It looks like, um, which you know is troubling. Yeah, I, I agree. That seems to be some troubling developments. Yeah, um, mm-hmm. but also just a lack of flexibility, I would say, and a lack um, from the Morales way. I mean, I'm not, I'm just extrapolating from what you said. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there certainly is that. Um, and then there are also structural things that, that we can think about. I mean, I already sort of pointed to one of them already by bringing up the demographic point about just the, the youngness of the country demographically and, and the way that that's expressed politically. And then the other thing to, to note is that Morales was an extremely successful developmentalist. I mean, he, he the, the, the kind of growth that Bolivia experienced, the kind of stability and growth the Bolivian economy experienced may have been historically unprecedented in the history of the country. I mean, it was it was a really major development. And, and what it did is it it provided pathways, certainly for the first time in a generation, maybe for the first time in as long as a century, really. It, it provided durable pathways for social advancement and upward mobility um, for a lot of people, especially indigenous people. Um, uh, and this created then a sort of a, a layer of uh, people associated with the Moss political organization in many cases, 
associated with the state or various state agencies in many cases. And then also a layer of, of what, what's called in Bolivia, the indigenous entrepreneurs. So, so business leaders coming out of these, these historically very, very um, marginalized communities that previously couldn't produce business leaders, you know? And so that sort of demographic change has also caused a fragmentation in, in Moss's base in a lot of ways. Um, and what I mean by that is that, I mean, I, I think I had noted in our previous conversation that when uh, Moss supporters pretty much, you know, turned out in the streets of Bolivian cities to, to object to the coup, what people were telling me at that time uh, was that those, those indigenous entrepreneurs were largely staying out of that fight and, and, and in a lot of ways valued stability and, you know, uh, continuing developmentalist policies more than they valued Evo staying in power or more than they valued Moss staying in power, right? And, and I think that actually Eva Copa, who I mentioned just a moment ago, in some ways it expressed that sentiment amongst a key part of Moss's base uh, by staying in the Senate and saying that we will not abandon the state. Uh, we, we understand that economically you have too much at stake and we will not abandon the state. Um, and so I think that's also playing out. It's difficult, right? I mean, we, we see a lot of parallels with what happened in Brazil and under Lula, especially. I mean, obviously, the, the, the kind of structural makeup of that coalition is different, especially in terms of indigeneity and that kind of aspirational, but that kind of aspirational mm -hmm. uh, class move over the last couple of decades is definitely, I think, a very strong similarity there. And then how do you maintain that? I guess that's like an ongoing struggle in this ideological conflict in the, in the region is how do you maintain that tie once the structure of your state is so different and your economy looks completely different from the demons that you were fighting 15, 10, 20 years ago, right? The, the threats are different. Like, how do you remind uh, a country with an average age in their 20s that the alternative is so much worse? Like, mm -hmm. there's this fascistic global hege hegemony, essentially, constantly having an onslaught. Like, it, it is a very difficult tension to, to kind of maintain, right, politically. I think it speaks to I think it speaks to the um, enduring contradictions of social democracy and, and and economic development though, and the class contradictions that kind of emerge therein. You know, um, and I think that that's something that any socialist movement has to face as it become as it kind of reaches a certain maturity. And I think it's you know like definitely with these um, you know these indigenous entrepreneurs that you're referring to, Jonah. So I mean, this is a classic contradiction. And I think um, you know like how we go we move from there as if as socialists I mean um is a really it still remains like a live question and I'm not sure you know I'm not sure we have the answer but I think at the end of the day it's when you are reliant on development to fund social programs that contradiction remains and you know it kind of is like something that can undermine your project in the future so they're you know they're they're almost the problem but I don't know I don't have any solutions unfortunately <laughs> yeah, no, I, I think that's a great point. And I think you really hit the nail on the head with the contradictions in development. I mean, that, that's exactly what's happening. And, and I think that, that very often when people discuss the contradictions in, in the pink tide sort of generally, what they tend to talk about is the contradiction between uh, economic growth and then environmental protection or environmental stewardship. You know, they talk about the tension between extractivism and socialism. Um, and that's sort of the intractable tension in, in the pink tide governments. And I think that's absolutely true. Um, and I think that like Taya Riafrancos and a number of, of scholars have written really, really well about that. Um, I also think that there's, there's a different contradiction, which, which has to do more with class mobility and class formation, um, which is that if, if the developmentalist program that the pink tide promised is successful, what it does in effect is, is, empower its base economically while in a very real sense, eliminating them politically. Mm. And, and what I mean by that is that it's providing pathways for, for upward mobility and it's actually, and it's providing, it's eliminating poverty and providing much better life outcomes. And so, so it's, so it's a good thing, but what it's not doing is creating institutions necessarily through which um, workers or welfare beneficiaries or, or socialists or, or whomever are able to express themselves politically and actually exert political power against capital. And, and this is a point that, that Rene Rojas has made, I think, really, really well, writing in Catalyst, that, that whereas the old left of Latin America that, that he refers to created institutions through which workers could advance demands uh, on the state and on capital, the new left, represented by the Pink Tide, has accomplished really laudable reductions in poverty, but did so it, it, through direct transfers that didn't really build up that institutional power. Um, and so now we're seeing that the power that they had was extremely temporary um, okay. was conjunctural, was really contingent. Mm. Mm. 
Well, uh, fascinating stuff. I wish we had three more hours or so to, to talk about. I mean, obviously, there's, there's an election coming up in, uh, in, in Ecuador as well that's really pivotal. Uh, but, you know, we're really really seeing a lot of these countries in Latin America poison a knife edge. And I get, you know, at this point, we can't do anything, but, but uh, at least from our end, sit and wait and see what happens and, and take what lessons we can from, from what the eventuality is. I really want to thank you for for coming here and educating us about this and, and yeah. informing us uh, your analysis is as as always so much more informative than um what you uh see in the in the western press and i think uh i think it's gonna be really interesting to a lot of people um this has been another episode of one of 200 uh you know the drill you know like subscribe share give us some money whatever you want to do uh get get the message out there um uh and uh and if you like what you hear tell your friends about it jonah thanks again and oh, thank uh, you i'll we'll we'll uh we'll talk again uh some other time hopefully yeah, i'd in, love to and in, in, in much more victorious circumstances <laughs> i hope so thanks so much it was such a delight to be back Keeping your glass half full The relentless routines The dying embers of your dreams Is a lie aspirational Will you die keeping your glass half full? You don't hate your nation You hate nationalism You don't hate your nation Hey, nationalism